0: Hey, everybody, thank you for tuning into Blockchain for the Billions today. I'm Cami Darling here with my co host, Alejandro.
1: Hey, everyone, thanks for joining us.
0: And today we are with Isha Gupta, founder of NFT music video marketplace Mysterious XYZ. She's also founder in Web2 of a popular mobile media reading app called Hooked. Isha, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I'm eager to get into Mysterious and how it came to be and all of that, but can you start our listeners off with a quick rundown of your background and kind of what led you to Mysterious?
2: Yes. Well, I guess I'll, I'm always, I'm always personally curious where people grew up. So I'll start there. I grew up in a really small town in Oklahoma. Um, I, for those listeners who are solidly in the Gen Z category. I don't know if you're going to know the movie Varsity Blues or the TV show slash movie Friday Night Lights, but that is truly the town that I grew up in. The football team won state sophomore year of high school. It was just like Jesus and country music and beer and all of that stuff. And so um, it was definitely an interesting experience as like the only Indian South Asian family in that town. And I think it really encouraged me to try and go to university somewhere that was not there. Um, And so I got very lucky, and I got into Columbia in New York, and I got to go and do undergrad there. And there I studied film. Um, I'll never forget, there were two movies that really inspired me to major in film. It was a narrative film called 13, um, the director of which is like went on to direct the Twilight series and become very famous. But that was one of her early films. And it's just such an intimate portrait of sort of teen life and in, in inspired by a specific area in which she grew up in the U.S. and a documentary called Jesus Camp. Um, and those two movies basically showed me, I guess, how powerful stories that often aren't getting, you know, don't get mainstream attention can be in terms of um, just giving you a perspective on the world and sort of, you know, changing your orientation to how you look at life and how you interact with people and see yourself in the world. And so I really became obsessed with this idea of giving a megaphone to more voices like that. Um, and, and this was back in like 2006. So obviously a lot of amazing progress has happened since then, but definitely back at that time, it felt like it was such a struggle um, to, get, to get unheard voices heard. And so I graduated and was really interested. It was sort of the rise of YouTube was happening. YouTube sort of came out when I was in college. And um, it felt like this really interesting new way to reach audiences and and certain creators were starting to gain traction. And so I basically was trying, I I first moved to LA after graduation, thought I was going to do the traditional film thing, but was sort of keeping an eye on YouTube and tech. And, you know, again, just really luck, uh, as luck had it, I, I sort of spammed Google every day just kind of to make myself feel better. I was, I was, I had a really crappy assistant job where I was basically just like getting dry cleaning and, and coffee and walking dogs and just doing all sorts of errands for a couple of producers and not learning too much. And so I would come home from those really long days and just apply to jobs. And for some reason, I just felt like Google, it made me feel better to apply to jobs there and it were there were jobs that were just completely out of my league like things that required like five to ten years of experience but i just sent my resume in it was like this weird ritual that i had i'd make tea and then just like spam google and after <laughs> that, um, i love that <laughs> yeah I, got I mean
1: you know you're you're making progress you're doing I love something that ambition. <laughs> right yeah
2: yeah we love that <laughs>
1: mentality
2: <laughs> well i think it did make a little dent in the universe because This recruiter emailed me just out of the, well, not out of the blue, but she was basically like, I have noticed the emails that you've been sending in to, you know, the recruiting department and you're really underqualified for everything that you're applying for. But there's this new kind of space that we're opening up for recent grads. And so It was essentially a glorified customer service position but it it was back in the day when it was still just like so amazing to get a job at google i don't know if it's like feels that way anymore but um so anyway i really again just like kind of randomly got that opportunity took it and that was really my first foray into being like you know in tech um and so i was there i was there for about a year and then i got bit by the startup bug I got an offer to work at this small startup called Fullscreen, which basically when it first started, their goal was essentially to aggregate a lot of YouTube talent in different verticals and then almost be kind of like the intersection of talent management, content creation across different verticals um, of influencers on YouTube. And so my job was really finding the talent, getting them to sign with us and then and then doing like brand partnerships and stuff. So I learned a lot about that whole ecosystem through that. And I think that is sort of when the theme that has been the thread throughout my career started, which is twofold. One, how do you use technology to basically you know, Im- impact culture? And by that, I mean, I guess, bring the joy of art into people's daily lives. And I have a pretty broad definition of what art is. So uh, there's that. And then I think the second piece is how How can technology actually empower creative people to cut out the middleman and make money doing what they love and not having to worry about that piece so that they can focus more energy on their art? And that was true at Fullscreen with this amazing suite of digital creators across all these different verticals. Then the startup after that that I worked at actually worked with Chefs. Um, to do kind of this was pre Airbnb experiences, but the idea was, uh, you know, you can travel anywhere in the world and have a, a really high quality homemade meal in someone's home. Basically, get to attend a really cool dinner party um, anywhere you travel to around the world. And then after that, I took like a couple of months off, and then basically, kind of started to work on what eventually became Hooked, the storytelling app, and and most recently now have. Fully jumped into Web3 with Mysterious.
0: Really cool. So, from my understanding and research, you uh, started Hooked and Mysterious with your uh, sibling and sibling in law. Am I correct?
2: Yes, you are. So, my older sister and her husband, my brother in law, the three of us have been working together for almost nine years now. Um, Wow. Yeah. And they actually have done startups together, the two of them. For almost a decade prior to that. And so I sort of joined at the phase when Hooked was starting to be developed. Um, although we weren't explicitly trying to make Hooked, the goal was really, well, first it was a question we wanted to answer, are teenagers reading fiction anymore? And if yes, how much? If not, why not? And sort of from the information we gathered from trying to answer that question, eventually Hooked sort of developed as this way to get teens, but also our age demo ended up being all the way up to like 35, 13 to 35, just getting people to reach fiction in their daily lives.
0: Super cool. So you're, you're kind of working with creators in Hooked, you know, like with the content and everything, and then you kind of discover Web3 and you want to, um, you know, empower the creator, cut out the middleman. So what sort of made you want to transition from, web two to web three
2: and begin working on mysterious yeah it's a good question well I think the three the three of us had our own kind of moments when we got uh when we went down the rabbit hole with uh with web three so our age differences are basically like brother-in-law is like 44 I don't even actually know sister is five and a half years older and then I'm Thirty-five, And so interestingly, my sister and brother-in-law have been dealing with crypto for a long time, um, mostly to buy things off of places like Silk Road, i.e., you know. Drugs. Um and so they, you know, they've been like in that world mostly for financial transactions for a while. And I first learned about the concept of crypto in twenty thirteen when I was living in sort of a community hacker house, but I didn't and I just didn't I feel like everyone has this kind of story. People, everyone at the house bought like one Bitcoin when it was like $500, you know, and I just didn't do it. But I always thought it was interesting. And, but I think for me personally, the thing that, and I think this makes sense, that really turned me on to it was when I started to realize that art and culture is something that's going to be deeply impacted by this new technology. And obviously that became most obvious for A lot of us when the rise of NFTs started to happen. And I think in that whole trajectory, the first thing that really caught my attention was NBA top shots. Um, I love basketball. I am five foot two. So my career got cut short very early in (laughs) life. But uh, I definitely had aspirations in middle school to be a a WNBA player from like fifth to eighth grade. And then everyone grew and I didn't. And I was like, all right, that's over. Um, But I do love basketball. And so when that whole phenomenon happened, and it felt like just sort of the general public was interested in this thing, I was like, Oh, my gosh, this is really cool. It almost felt like this little portal that opened for a second. And then, you know, and showed what's possible in terms of really galvanizing, um, not just like, quote, unquote, nerds, but like, just the general public. And so, yeah, so after that is really when I when I started going down the rabbit hole and then it was just um, listening to podcasts and reading articles. And, and I found out that my brother-in-law had been making music NFTs just as a side project and was just doing it like for fun. And so then that sort of came out and then the three of us started talking about it. And this was in, the three of us kind of discovered each other's rabbit hole moments around September of last year. And we really then were talking about where are, where are music NFTs? Like it's all just been visual art and obviously it's changed a lot since then, um, but it was just a gaping hole in the market and we felt like it was an opportunity and and also an opportunity to work with a lot of artists who we really love.
0: Mm-hmm. Perfect segue into my next question, which would be what core need did you see that made you decide like a a music video NFT platform needed to exist. And like, obviously there just wasn't one. Um, So kind of tell me more about how you guys came together and identified that and just decided to execute
2: on the idea. Yeah, it's a good question because I think visual art feels, well, for those of us who are like bought into NFTs and feel like there's a future there, it feels obvious because the collecting piece There's such an analogy to just collecting art or photography and wanting to put it up in your room or in somewhere in your house and sort of show it off or or support artists in that way. Um, Collecting music, I guess there is an analog equivalent, which is records, but that's not maybe as mainstream. And I think a lot of the technologies that have been developed in Web2 have really sort of fractured the idea of, um, you know, patronage of music and in that particular art form. So it wasn't as obvious, I think, that people would collect audio tracks in the way that they had been up until that point collecting visual art. And so it felt like the visual piece was necessary, that in order for it to feel like a collect something people want to collect, it needs to have a visual component. And so I think there was like a little bit of that thought happening in addition to this other thought which is a little bit it's separate but related which is that it, and it's about it's about the collecting right and and so there's a social component to it which is like why do we care about collecting things i think there is the sense of which you just love an artist and you just want to support them i think a lot of it is about showing people who you're supporting and what your values are And almost as an extension of owning or collecting something, showing a type of expression of your own personality. And so that also, and where do we do that in digital spaces? We do it on social media. And so I think the thought also was like, if I, assuming we get to a place with NFTs, which I think is true, where like NFTs are basically going to be the new selfie, you know, instead of posting cool pictures of yourself on the beach, it'll be, maybe that won't go away, but in addition to that, People are maybe going to start posting NFTs An audio file just isn't going to be interesting. Like you're going to want something that's visual to go along Mm -hmm. with it. And so honestly, those were the early thoughts that led us to think that way. I'll also add that the musicians we had in mind from the get go, which is a genre that all three of us are equally obsessed with, the sort of experimental electronic hip hop space, a lot of them are visual artists and or work with visual artists to have that component at at their shows or in things that they release. So there's like a very natural kind of um, obvious just collaboration there that would be easy to do given given the like genre that we wanted to work with in the first place. Very cool. Yeah. And I guess, sorry, I'll add one thing, which is I think you were you were asking sort of what was the need in the marketplace, like hands down. There were just no, there was really not an emphasis on music NFTs at that point. This is again, kind of fall of 2021. It was just beginning. Like I think sound XYZ just came out. There had been a handful of artists. Like I think I could count them on one hand, maybe four or five who had done drops, but there wasn't this sense of mass marketplaces for music NFTs in the way that there was for visual art, at least at that point.
1: Yeah. Awesome. I think, I mean... There's so many kind of interesting things that you just said, you know, especially around kind of how generally programmable blockchains like Ethereum really changed the game and allowed for this technology to influence culture, right? And then we saw a whole bunch of creatives and, you know, creator type of people come into the space to try to disrupt, um, you know, traditional culture applications uh, and use cases with this technology. I think one thing that, you know, I'm still kind of interested in, in understanding is what kind of barriers, you know, existed in, in traditional NFT markets like OpenSea, um, you know, that Mysterious might be trying to help reduce or minimize?
2: Yeah. Um, I don't know. So when we started, it's a good question. Startups just evolve so much. You know, you have a North Star, our North Star has been and I think will continue to be sort of promoting artists um, who were pretty shafted by web two structures um, like really getting them helping them realize the full potential of their art in terms of economics for sure and then also just connecting them with audiences more directly and then I think this other thing that has always sort of been brewing from the beginning is is how do we how can this technology that is just going to be fundamentally shift the way that we interact with information on the internet how can it be a tool that also hopefully for the better changes how we socialize with each other online because ultimately we're all we all love to connect over art and culture right and so nfts are this thing that I, are just at such baby stages in terms of Sure, it's about like collection and currency exchange, but it's also just about like connecting with each other. And I just think about all the interesting behavioral, uh, like trends that emerged around NFTs just what people did in spaces in terms of communicating with each other online because of this single thing in NFT. And it just feels like it's the beginning of a new type of social media, um, which I feel like I'll talk about more later. So I think. Those were kind of the things there, but with OpenSea in particular, I've always felt like it's you know it's awesome what they've done and it's made trading so easy. The one thing I feel that's lacking there is curation, and I know that they have curated collections and they're trying, but sometimes it's like it's one of those things where you you get too big, like it's just too hard to to know what's actually. It's a little started.
0: overwhelming.
2: It is. It's overwhelming. And even they're, cura- they're like almost too many curated collections. And so I will say that is one thing we thought was missing, too, and that we thought we could help solve um, when we first started, for sure, is like, OK, we're going to be really hardcore about staying genre specific and only basically inviting artists into the collective that all the other artists respect and feel like are their peers and so that was very that has been and continues to be very important is we have created a collective and it does really matter who's in it and we're you know and these are the types of artists that would just be like so annoyed if we had some big deal with like a big pop star sure that would bring in potentially revenue etc etc but none of them care about that and I think it's great because it's it's really helped us stay very authentic and very, very curated. Um, And that does still feel kind of rare and hard to find, particularly in marketplaces like OpenSea.
1: Yeah, it feels like OpenSea and a lot of these other kind of very broad strokes marketplaces have a long way to go. Um, Because when we think about, you know, what we were mentioning earlier with NFTs being uh, really kind of Um, important form for people to express themselves and how collections really just are avenues for self-expression, you would think that, you know, a lot of these marketplaces would personalize collections or recommend collections to users, um, making it easier, you know, for them to kind of do their thing on their platform. But I think that is really lacking. And that's why there is this white space for platforms like Mysterious and other kind of marketplaces that do a little bit more of that curation kind of service to come in and and deliver that value proposition to users. However, I think it's always just really difficult in general when you're trying to deliver a two-sided value proposition. Um, And so marketplaces are particularly tricky things to start. But I I would be really curious about, you know, your go-to-market strategy and, you know, kind of what your ideal customer looks like Um, you know, not only from the artist side, but also from the maybe collector side? And if you could kind of shed some light on that.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, completely agree. Marketplaces, the two-sided problem of a marketplace is very hard. And honestly, in terms of, really depends on what you're optimizing for. Obviously, if you're a business, you have to at some point depending on, I guess, how much VC funding you get and when you have to think about the business, right? And like marketplaces inherently require very high volume in order for the economics to work. I think particularly if you're if you're staying true to the ethos of like blockchain, which is that your fees should be very, very small so that the artist basically gets as much upside as possible. Um, And so therefore, you need high volume, right? And then that's directly at odds with curation, which is like, obviously, if you're curated, you're you're not thinking about high volume transactions. So these are all questions that we had very early on. And I think that's why also the launch of the platform itself never felt like the end goal. It always felt like it is in service of something bigger. But step one was definitely... You know curating a great group of artists who all feel excited educating them onboarding them um, every single artist we helped mint their genesis nft except Teebs. he's he kind of was already in the space and and has many visual art nfts but it never dropped any music nfts um so i'll answer your question first about just how we thought about the musicians and and that side of the marketplace I think I've kind of already said this, but, you know, very specific genre um, and, and like even within experimental electronic and hip hop, I feel like there are all these different genres. But there is just this group of musicians who we happen to know about and have been listening to since we were teenagers, which is uh, they're, they're all kind of peers of each other. A lot of them like ha- are on each other's tracks they sort of came up together. And then there's sort of a group of people who are maybe inspired by them. There's just like a little community already that exists. um, And that we just happen to know about because of our passion for their music. And so it was a core group of about 10 artists who we reached out to first. And then based on conversations with them, it just grew a little bit out and out. And that's how it's going to continue to grow. It'll either be Uh, like someone who's already kind of within that community or someone new who a current artist like recommends. So that in that way, it's staying very thematically cohesive. Um, In terms of sort of our ideal user or person or collector, um, honestly, people who really are already fans of these musicians and who just love their music, have been listening to them for a long time. I think there's, because of the, Tightness of the theme. I personally feel like if you love any single artist in in the Mysterious Collective, you're probably gonna like at least one or two of the others. So it's a good way. Like, let's say you're a hardcore Tees fan, and you come in, you are most likely gonna love Mind Design um, and Shigeto, right? And so you could potentially through coming in through Tees discover these other artists that you really love. So definitely fans of musicians of the specific mus- musicians, fans of the genre. Um, and what I will say though, beyond that now is that, so we have Mysterious, the platform, which is the place where you can collect each of these artists, you know, music, video, NFT, Genesis drop. Um, and the NFT itself now serves as a ticket into the app, which launched on Monday. And the Mysterious app is basically a mobile app for this micro community we're building of uh, the artists themselves, their closest friends and family, and their super fans. So each artist gets like a select amount of invites that they can have to bring in like their homies basically. And then it's the artists themselves and then NFT collectors. And it's basically a chat group um, but with a little bit of like special behavioral mechanics that we've built in primarily um, in service of helping people feel less FOMO, slowing down and connecting more deeply with each other within the context of this more intimate group that's focused around this theme or passion. And so the first kind of mechanic that we've come up with and that we're seeing how people respond to is um, only one person can post at a time. So that person's designated as the speaker and they have 24 hours to make a post. And once they post, people have 24 hours to respond. And then basically that person who was assigned the speaker passes the mic to someone else and then it's their turn to make a post. And they're, you know, the prompt right now is basically post something mysterious and it can be anything about music or life. Um, and the idea is really really inspired by conversations we had with each of the artists in our collective and they individually told us over these past few months that one of the things they missed the most about pre-internet life but definitely pre-social media life is just um, congregating in these sort of little watering holes or speakeasy type places where all the artists would come and perform or share something that they're working on. And people would just shoot the shit and talk about life and talk about art. And all of them kind of said they would come out of these experiences feeling renewed and inspired and that that's just becoming harder and harder to do. And, you know, by no means do I think we can replace the like in real life um, interactions, but it does feel like there's an opportunity to see if some of that magic can be recreated in digital spaces and this is what I mean by sort of the future of social media. I think there's an opportunity for the first time in this sort of like era, you know, the last 20, 30 years where social media doesn't necessarily have to be this super one-to-many experience. It can be more private. And the reason for that is maybe there's a different economic system that isn't all about optimizing algorithms for ad spend and ad serving, but rather like something that can be more human centered and powered by NFTs and potentially tokenomics. So,
1: yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I loved hearing what you had to say, kind of about you know the future of social media and how that can kind of be transformed, right? Um, no, I think that totally makes sense. I mean, when you think about what three um, for some things. You know, like like a marketplace, it makes sense uh, to, you know, like you were saying, the monetization really only makes sense if you can really increase the volume and the participation. Um, But you know, maybe there's other applications where um, people are willing to pay more for, uh, you know, more kind of personalized experiences, or maybe if they love the experiences enough and they participate enough. Um, just by the increase in participation and the fact that, you know, the monetization has happened per unit of participation with tokenomics, um, you know, there can be kind of new internet business models being built. Exactly.
2: So, yeah. That's the hope. Good we'll point. See. Yeah. It's it a feels- really
1: interesting thing to, to just explore, right. And think about, you know, kind of different business models that might be within reach now, now with web three and tokenomics, um, but yeah, I mean, I think also some other things that we, you know, something else that we always like to ask people um, when they're starting something as hard as a marketplace is, you know, what other roadblocks really did you encounter early on? And, um, you know, kind of how did they form your experience building Mysterious and how they inform that you think, you know, about your your company moving forward?
2: Yeah, I think, um, well, two things popped into my head. Two words. So I'll say the words and then I'll talk about them. The first one was education and the second was hype. Um, and so by education, I mean that in the beginning in particular, there's just a lot of uh, resistance and hesitation from the artists to get involved with Web3. And the, the kind of two biggest reasons that they often cited over and over again was environmental concerns and their fans canceling them for getting into this space that especially again in fall of last year, it was pretty, I think it's still kind of polarizing, although because it's a bear market, I think all the haters feel very emboldened to be like, whatever we told you so. Anyway, but back in fall of 2021, I do think that um, it was kind of like, it could be very polarizing for, for artists' audiences. For them to step into the space. And if their audience just like is judgy about it or doesn't get it, there's this fear that they would get canceled by their current audience members. And so, um, a huge sort of block in the beginning was just really educating about all of these aspects and about the fact that there's this PR problem with crypto and blockchain, but that actually there's a lot of really interesting communities and there's a lot of opportunity to be shaping it in a way that's not just like bro-y. Um, and so I'd say that, but I think education continues to be, um, not, maybe not a roadblock, but definitely something that can be a little bit of a, yeah, just an area of opportunity. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, and just the amount of time, frankly, that I spend on the phone with people, like walking them through the steps about how to do things and protect your seed phrase and, you know, just like really handholding people, which is totally fine. And I love doing it. And it's definitely really high touch and, and sort of one on one, like slow education, which I think is required. I think, though, it will get less and less um, time consuming as the technology itself just becomes sort of less like 1990 ish, you know, in a weird way. It's like so advanced, but also so janky at the same time. <laughs> um,
1: the 1990s of 2022. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, and then the other piece is hype. I just feel like that's not something that's happening now. But in general, I do feel like NFT collections up until sort of the crash, it was just, it wasn't about. A lot of times it just was not about quality of the project or the art or the intention. It was just about how much hype you could drum up for your project in order to get it sold out. And there was this sense in which if you didn't sell out immediately, it was a failure, right? And I think that's just not long-term sustainable. That mentality and that machine is not a long-term play, and I think it was really challenging during that whole time. And it will probably happen again once there's an uptick to really stay true to your vision and your mission and remember that this is not a flash in the pan, that this is something that's gonna take 10, 20 years if you really, really want to have a lasting impact on culture. So just to not get like sucked into that um, that vibe, I think feels like pretty challenging.
0: Yeah, it's pretty interesting seeing all of the hype it's kind of dying down now like you said we're in a bear market but it is like a true skill set being able to kind of delineate the like noise and hype away from serious builders in the space um and with that being said there are a lot of you know aspiring web3 founders listening to this podcast and um speaking of blockers something that you and I have chatted about before um, recording was you guys recently uh, launched your app on the App Store, which congratulations, that's a huge Thank accomplishment. Um, so I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners kind of what that process was like. I know we've heard from previous guests that it can be um, a, a little interesting, some some hoops to jump through. So we're interested to hear kind of about your experience with uh, working on launching that app.
2: Yeah, definitely. I felt this time around that I frankly do not understand how someone who is trying to launch an app for the very first time does it anymore. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like, it is just, there are a lot of hoops to jump through. And I think that we, you know, collectively myself, and then also if we include the experience of my sister and brother-in-law have been launching apps for like 20 years and there's just a level of sort of like we have people in there who we can talk to directly when like we get rejected you know from the app store whereas like if you don't have that you're kind of it sometimes just feels like you're responding to emails and the ends are just like going into the ether and you don't know you know <laughs> and so I do feel like it is really challenging unless you sort of have like, the key to it all, I think, is to have a person who is advocating for have you. Have, like, a and
0: foundational who, contact when you're going into it.
2: Yeah, who can really kind of explain to you what certain language around an email means and and what you can do to sort of speed up um, resubmission and, you know, and getting accepted. and 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 I think really just understanding, like, when you're getting... You know, when you're not getting accepted into the app store, like what it is that they actually are having an issue with, which I get it. It's hard in email. And if you're trying to keep a certain type of like legal wording happening in your emails, like how specific you can be. And that's when it's just really key to be able to hop on the phone with someone and be like, okay, like what does this mean? And (laughs) what do we need to do? Um, I will say, you know, we had a target, even knowing this we had a target to launch a lot earlier than we did. So we launched on Monday and our goal originally was to launch on September 1st. And it was really just because there was a lot of just a lot of these rounds of feedback that we had to go through that we had already thought we built in, but it was just even more. And so, which I think has increased probably because Apple's really cracked down on privacy stuff and, you know, they themselves are really thinking about their own marketplace Mm -hmm. and, It's just, yeah, it's tough out there to be an app creator for sure. And then I think you add the layer of Web3 onto the whole thing. And I think maybe sometimes fundamentally the philosophy of Web3 is maybe not aligned with what Apple's trying to do for itself. And so just navigating those conversations um, can be tricky too. Yeah,
0: the Web3 aspect always makes it like, gives it a taboo like connotation almost like guys just wait we're gonna be you know web 3 is gonna find you sooner or later Um, yeah
2: yeah and to be fair I mean one of the conversations we had with them is that they really are very sensitive to scammy projects right and so which makes sense like they want to make sure that they're not allowing just like something that's gonna ultimately harm people to be on the app store and so there's just like a lot of Uh, I think a lot of people have to have to make sure that that it's legit before they'll they'll actually give you approval.
0: Right. Yeah. They've got to be careful on uh, what they facilitate via that app store. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) So (laughs) you mentioned sort of like your your um, siblings and, and sibling in law. Um, so what about, I'm going to bring it back to that. (laughs) What about your sibling and sibling in law? Did you guys decide like, oh, this is a perfect dynamic. Like we want to even like back when you're starting hooked, like, and now with, um, mysterious, but what kind of about your dynamic makes it a good team? Like, I know that working with family can be tough for some people. So I just want to hear, um, a little bit more about how you guys navigate that.
2: Yeah, it's a great question and one that I get a lot. Um, And I will say, I want to start off by saying that I don't think I could work with like just anyone in my family. So I have a younger brother also. I love him. Ridge, if you (laughs) listen to this, I love you. You know that. But he also knows that we would never be able to work together. Um, Because I think we both, maybe whatever it is, the dynamic between us, just our egos clash and that just for whatever reason does not happen with me and my sister and brother-in-law we really feel very confident and comfortable in our lanes and the things that we're good at um and they all are complementary skill sets and we're really good at communicating with each other like very quickly very honestly uh just efficiently we don't really get like our feelings don't get hurt by each other There's just this sense, and I think it really comes from just a really, really deep trust that we all are on, we all have a shared vision and we all really see each other's wins as our own wins. Like there's no competition or sort of selfishness, you know, and it just has magically been that way with the three of us. And I wonder if it's an age difference thing, um, I think it also is just that we are really, we really respect each other's skill sets. And there's no sense in which I wish I were doing what the other two were doing or vice versa. Um, But it really comes down, I think, to trust and and communication is key. Mm -hmm. And I say that because I worked at other startups, like two other major ones, it's like two and a half. Um, And they were all like, when I was, I was like employee number somewhere between five and 10. So it was very small. And, you know, stuff just broke down because people got chasty. They like hid information. They wouldn't share. There wasn't this openness. You know, there was a lack of trust around what to share with who. And when that feeling, when people catch on to that happening, everything breaks down. And so I think just the ability to remain In trust with each other and and keep communication really clear and honest and just work through things. Like you don't hold on to grudge it, you just work through it and the energy just keeps flowing. Like like weird stuff doesn't build up. Then you're able to move quickly and just keep moving forward. And yeah, I don't know. For whatever reason, the universe just like allowed for that little constellation to be possible between the three of us. But I think it can be possible with anyone. It's just about finding that it happened to be my siblings you know
0: yeah no I love that um I I've also worked at a couple of startups so I've experienced that sort of like nobody wants to take ownership of anything um dynamic so it's nice that you guys have each other to sort of lean on and be transparent with uh with each other so a couple more questions before we wrap it up but um any future sort of app upgrades that we can look forward to? I know you said that just the launch, you know, it's just, just step one here. Um, there's more to come. So, is there anything you can sort of um, give us the inside scoop on?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I honestly feel like it's too early because what what we're we're in a phase right now where we're really going to just see how people respond um to to what the idea that we had and in, in many ways launching an app is literally we were kind of talking about this before um we officially started the podcast today which is that um it's just like kindergarten you're at kinder you're like at preschool when you launch the app you know and it's mm-hmm. like just truly the beginning of the journey because you hopefully i think if you're doing it in the way that leads to the most success, which is you don't over, you're not precious about all the features. You just have a core concept that you're trying to test and you have a couple of ideas and you see, you get data basically around people, how people respond to it. And you let go, you have to kill your babies. Like it's it's possible this mechanic isn't the mechanic, you know, and then we have other ideas that we will test, or maybe it's about tweaking something. And so I think we're really in that phase where we're just going to see that. Um, Definitely, I do think that there are ideas for a couple of different communities in addition to this one. So obviously, the growth in this type of product is not to make any single community huge, it's to, you know, replicate the template across different kinds of communities. So I think that might be coming sooner rather than later. Um, And yeah, I'd say those are probably kind of the two bigger things. I'm I always give this example of like, you know, just inspiration in terms of how we're approaching the app and it, and its evolution, which is like you think about, so there are two examples. One is, um, uh, my God, Slack. So Slack is this product that basically kind of won the inner, inter-company communication game right and you think about how like ultimately they didn't really come up with anything new like social media is not a new concept right but they just they designed it and tweaked the behavior and the mechanics in just the right way that it made it delightful it made it fun and delightful and easy to use and i think that that is a sort of a great model to think about in a space that's so saturated and competitive. It's not about, you're not reinventing the wheel. I personally think that this is going to be a really hot space in the next six to 12 months, Uh, famous last words, and there is going to be a lot of effort into thinking about like social media and web three. And it's just going to be about who kind of like does the slack thing. Um, And then the other kind of example I'm always thinking of is OnlyFans they took a behavior, they took a set of behaviors that they were, they had observed for years on Snapchat, like that product existed as a sub product on Snapchat, basically for years. And they took that and they made it, they productized it into something specific and better for that community that they saw was thriving on this product that was not built for those interactions. And so I think similarly, it's like, we're at a phase where we have observed this kind of Behavior happening in Discord, Telegram, like even Slack, like text threads, like what's that? all these kind of disparate places around NFTs? And so, what are sort of the little levers to pull and like things to take, and then and productize into something specific and really useful for this particular mission and like
1: community. Mm-hmm. For any aspiring Web3 founders listening now, what advice would you give someone looking to start building the space?
2: Ooh, that's a good question. Well, I think probably first take time to educate yourself and identify what it is that you're most excited about. I just think that being a founder is really hard and you have to really care about what you're doing because there are a lot of down moments. And there are going to be many times when people are just slamming the door in your face and you want to quit. And in those moments, you have to have a reason why you're not going to quit. And for me, I guess what I would say is for me, it's it's just feeling passionate about the thing, whatever that reason is for you. And just be honest with yourself, identify it and make sure that it feels true Um, And for me, it really starts with education, like get a get a good sense of what the space is and then just what you're naturally drawn to and distill, distill, distill until you feel like you have a passion that you can really hold on to and then build from that place, you know, identify what it is that you would be excited to work on for probably a lot longer than you think (laughs) before you start gaining traction and yeah, and then I think the other thing that cannot be um, said enough is people in this space actually, at least from my understanding or experience so far, are really friendly. If you DM someone on Twitter, if you email them, reach out, LinkedIn, whatever, like if they actually see it, which sometimes they won't um, because there are too many messages. But like if they see it, they'll respond to you and help you. Um and, and I definitely feel that way. So anyone listening, like reach out to me and I'm happy to hop on a call with you, share resources. Um, just you, you cannot replace how much you can learn just by talking to someone.
1: Absolutely. Totally. I think that's really good advice. And like something that I definitely notice with founders is that, you know, the most passionate ones that... Um, are resilient enough, whether it's for you know their own belief in what they're doing or just by nature seem to be the ones that find a way um when everything kind of looks gray, you know.
0: Yeah, and right. I have to echo what you said. Everybody in the, the web three space is so kind. I started my career back in April in the Web3 space and like have been able to onboard so quickly just um with the community being so welcoming. So yeah, I have to echo you on that one. Um Isha, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's been a fantastic conversation. Um do you want to let our listeners know sort of where they can um find you and find uh, mysterious and where they can follow along?
2: Yeah. um I also before I do that, I just want to say thank you so much. This is really fun. It just felt like we had all grabbed coffee or a drink or something together. so it had. <laughs> that energy, which is really hard to create digitally. So thank you for creating that space for us to hang out. Um, Yeah, so, okay, so you can find me personally. My handle is, it's pronounced Bionic Bodhi. And so it's just Bionic B-O-D-H-I. And Mysterious you can find on Twitter at Mysterious underscore X, Y, Z. Uh, But you can also find it just from going to my, my profile. And the app, if you're interested in being part of the community, um, just reach out to me. You can also email me um, at Isha at And it's kind of where we are being very curated. So I'm basically having a one-on-one conversation with anyone we invite into the community. So if you're interested, just reach out to me. We'll set up a time to chat um, and then go from there.
1: Thanks everyone for listening. We had such a good time talking to you today, Isha. Thanks again.
2: Thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks again for listening, everyone. We'll see you.